Hey listeners, it's Alex, your host of EOA, Entrepreneurs of Asia, a show where we talk to the founders, investors, and entrepreneurs impacting the Asia startup ecosystem. On the show, we like to have genuine, authentic conversations about our guests' journey, challenges, their visions, and the problems they are solving, and what kind of impact they had or have across the region. Today's episode is no different. However, what is unique is that I have actually never met or spoke to our guest before the session. In a sense, it was risky for both of us, but I was very happy with how things turned out, and the discussion was very rich and fruitful. Previously on our show, we've had very large family businesses, tech startups, and food entrepreneurs, and much more. For today's guest, Joanne Kwa, her story and profile literally check all those boxes and more. You'll get to learn more about Joanne and her development as a leader of a growing conglomerate, how she was able to transform one of Malaysia's largest insurance companies into what it is today, KSK. We get to hear about her early career from her days in banking in London during the subprime crisis, all the way through to her leading the sale of Kernia Insurance and launching KSK Land, along with their flagship lifestyle property development at the heart of Kuala Lumpur, 8 Conley. We briefly talk about two tech startups Joanne has helped co-found under KSK, Sunday Insurance and Karmana who already raised significant rounds of funding and have strong traction in Thailand and Indonesia. Lastly, we talk about what we believe to be Southeast Asia or Asia's first food accelerator, Platter. We discuss the Platter accelerator's potential to impact the food ecosystem and her ambitions around this unique concept. Tech startup accelerators are well known around the world, but I personally don't know any famous food-related ones. Also, although it was only briefly mentioned, we have been honored as listeners of EOA, to be the first to know publicly that KSK has decided to join the ranks of CVC, Corporate Venture Capital. While CVC is a very mature concept in the West, it's somewhat relatively new for Asia and been more widely seen in markets such as Singapore, from what I understand. If you want to learn more about how to pivot an old insurance company into a rapidly growing conglomerate that touches everything from lifestyle property development, tech startups, insurance, and CVC, dive right in and listen. Uh, Joanne, welcome yeah. to the show. Thank you for your time today. Thank you for having me. Yes, so Joanne's currently CEO of KSK Group. Uh, And would you classify that as uh, an aspiring conglomerate or would you say it's already an established conglomerate? Interesting. I think it's both. It's both, okay. Um, Yeah. Okay. Uh, And today's possible because of our our mutual friend, uh, Jonathan. Uh, He's been working with you for a few years now. I I met him a few years ago. He's a great guy. Um, But I guess in this case, he's more of your colleague, right? Uh, he works uh, with me, yeah, I would like to say yeah. that way. Uh, he's a very talented individual. Do you think it's possible for colleagues to be friends? or? Um, sure. Uh, but I think, you know, uh, it's natural sometimes as people always feel like there's a little bit of a distance, especially when, you know, they say, oh, okay, they're in the company and I'm the CEO. Mm. Uh, but but in, in KSK, at least, uh, we operate a lot um, like a very close-knit community. So, so apart from working, we always like to share a little bit about ourselves as well with each other. Yeah, I mean, that, that lends to this, uh, the idea of being vulnerable on both sides to establish yeah. trust. Correct. Uh, and Correct. it helps towards culture building, right? Correct, yeah. Uh, so currently, KSK operates in property development. Yeah. Uh, you have tech startups, uh, insurance, and yes. an auto marketplace, right? Yeah. Uh, previously, the, where KSK was born out of, originally the core business was insurance. Yeah. Uh, and most recently, you launched a food accelerator. 
yeah. which which I suspect is is it the first in Southeast Asia? Would you say? Uh, I have yes, not heard of. Yeah. I would suspect so. Yeah, I haven't I heard like of any. <laughs> um, so yeah. I definitely think later on yeah. we'll be getting into that. Sure. Uh, but currently, just to let the audience know more, like uh, currently KSK what has over a thousand employees. Um, well, I would say slightly less uh, across board in the region. Yeah, yeah Malaysia, Thailand, and Indonesia. Yeah. So it's been growing very fast then yeah. in the past, say, close to 10 years now, mm. right? Since you started. Mm. Uh, so in terms of topics today, you know, we'll get to jo- know Joanne a little bit better, talk briefly about her earlier work experiences. Then we'll talk a little bit about the family business and then more importantly, the Platter Food Accelerator, sure. right? So uh, for the first question, mm. uh, it's more towards personal growth and leadership. Yeah. Uh, and in the press, you know, correct me if I'm wrong. In the past, you kind of positioned yourself somewhat as an underdog where age, gender, and experience have been issues you spoke to a lot, right? So what exactly did you face that shaped your experience in this narrative? Um, I started my career uh, in banking uh, and actually in insurance as well. Mm-hmm. So out of uh, Europe, um, and I think when, when I started my career, everyone wanted to be in banking. And mm. then, uh, yes. <laughs> yes, I remember that. <laughs> yeah. And then, uh, I went into it and, you know, because everyone was saying it's very glam and, 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 and then, um, yeah, I mean, it was, it was a high when I started. Obviously it was, uh, in London. So really at the center of everything. Um, but, you know, very quickly, two and a half years on, we had the Lehman Brothers crisis. Mm-hmm. So I think when you, when you start your career at a high and, and then, you know, very shortly after you wake up the next morning and then when a crisis hits, um, I think that's, that's looking back. I always say that's probably one of the most valuable experiences that I've taken out of. Um, and ever since then, because I think you learn a lot in a crisis, you okay. know, uh, when, when you start your career at a high, everything is like sunflower, you know, everything works. Yeah. Um, and when, when, you know, you wake up the next day, uh, and when a crisis hits, you really see the crux of what works and what really doesn't work. Okay. Um, and really, you know, taking on that experience, not just from myself, but really from the people around me, uh, mm-hmm. as well. Uh, when, when, you know, I guess when you see people coming from all walks of life and, and how that really affects us in the, in the businesses. Um, and all the time, uh, I've always felt of my career, um, after after investment banking in, in London and coming back into the family business, it's always been about building something or transforming something. And, and, and even now, 10 years on uh, since I've been back, um, it's always been, you know, starting up something new or pushing the boundary with something. And, and that's why I guess um, a lot of times uh, whenever I'm speaking uh, in public, people always say, oh, yeah, you, you, you're like the underdog, you know, doing a lot of uh, new things and trying out something new. And, and, and for me personally, I like that, actually. Mm-hmm. I like the fact that we are always trying something new and we're always thrown into the deep end and that feeling is, is a little bit like a roller coaster. Um, and sometimes I think it, it can be a little bit addictive as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, personally, uh, that's what drives me and, and I really don't want it to stop really. So whenever things um, uh, seems a little bit more stable, that's where we, we go out and we look for something new to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and that's really what being an entrepreneur is really all about. And, and yeah. that's my journey in discovering yeah. that as well. Okay, so if I, if I understand correctly, basically, yeah. um, you know, you had a very early experience where you saw things 
were not really perfect, right? This kind of world kind of melting. You enter the workforce and things blow up, right? Um, that kind of starts shaping some of your thoughts. And then uh, probably by force of nature of where the business was when you came back, yeah. um, I think just about probably being young yeah. uh, and as huge challenges, right? Yeah. So they think... I think when I came back, it was, um, it was very strange because... I was very young and I came back into a business where, you know, we were, we used to be Kurnia and, you know, we used to be one of the largest uh, insurers in, in Malaysia and, you know, we were in the region as well. And when you're coming back that young into an organization that's so huge and, and so stable, you mm-hmm. wonder, right, where is your place in this and, yeah. and really what would you be able to do? Mm-hmm. Um, and then I started going into Indonesia very quickly and, yeah. and then having to transform the bis- the insurance business in Indonesia and Thailand um, opened up my eyes. You know, it's another place where, ah, okay, I'm, I'm fixing something. And hopefully when you fix something, it, it's also about creating your own legacy. And, and that's mm. a little bit of like, when you're transforming something, it's also, it's, it's transforming something, but it's also venture building something. Because yes. it's building your your the culture you want to rebuild again, uh, the type of businesses you want to, or the products that you want to create again, you know, the distribution channels that you want to do again, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and that really was the start of that entrepreneurship journey, yeah. uh, starting young. And, and that's where I feel that, yeah, okay, that's, that's building. It's not about the age anymore. It's really building the legacy. And that's where, you know, you start getting uh, people start looking at you and saying, yeah. ah, okay, that's where the trust uh, starts coming in. Yeah. yeah. So, so essentially, uh, it, the PR story comes off that way because just by the nature of the work, there was just so much to do and change. Yeah. It's just at that point in time, that's what the business needed. And you were young and you were taking on that challenge. So that, yeah. that's what it is. And yeah. how much do you think of that narrative was you feeling imposter syndrome? Impossible. Interesting. So, yeah. um, I don't think that has actually ever come on. Um, it's nerve wracking. I have to admit, uh, when you're going in young and people yeah. are looking at you yeah, yeah, <laughs> in yeah. the room. Um, but I always thought of of um, always like collaboration. You know, mm-hmm. uh, I picked this on very early. Uh, lucky enough, uh, when I was working in Deutsche, because. Mm. When you start your career at 21, 22, and you're going into investment banking, you know, what do you know? Uh, <laughs> I think if, if you talk about imposter syndrome, I think it starts from there, right? Okay, that's fair. Yeah, and, yeah. and you sit in the room and people stare at you and you get given a portfolio and you, people tell you, run it. Okay. Um, but that's where I think uh, the valuable experience comes in when you have a crisis hit and people are looking at you and saying, deal with your own portfolio now because yeah, 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 there's yeah, just yeah. fire everywhere. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so 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 that's where I th- I think that 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 imposter um, yeah. uh, f- syndrome doesn't really come in anymore because because then it's just uh, take the take one step forward all yeah. the time and see where yeah. you get to and really being genuine about it. Well, essentially, you, it's trial by fire, I, and I think okay, that's probably one. I, I'm always very critical of banking in general, but <laughs> <laughs> but like I think that one thing that I do get right is that kind of work ethic when you're young. Yeah. It sets the foundation. And yeah. I guess what I'm hearing is that because you were going through trial by fire, when you did step into uh, the family business, uh, that's why you don't feel that. You know, yeah. you already had established your legs very early on, yeah. which is quite pivotal, especially for entrepreneurship. And I think that a lot of young people don't get that. When they want to kind of start their own business, they don't really understand how much pain it is. Yeah, and the, I, grit yeah. And the grit and the kind yes. of yeah. tenacity that you have so, to go through. 
I guess the common theme is like, you know, for consultants and management consulting, BCG, yeah. McKinsey, and, and investment bankers, um, I think that makes a lot of sense to kind of get that discipline early on, yeah. right? Okay, I like that answer. Okay, so since you started your journey as a CEO, and I think in one or two years, or has it already been a decade? Um, Close, it's been right? eight years, yeah. yeah I mean, so. it's been a decade since I've been with the group, but yeah. eight years since yeah. I've been CEO, yeah. So in one or two years, it'll be a decade? Yes. Do you feel you have found your own authentic voice as a leader and a manager? Do you feel you have a very strong confidence to exert your vision? Yeah, I think yeah. so. Um, uh, I found, um, yeah, I mean, uh, over the years, you know, I always ponder this question, actually. Yeah. Uh, but for me, I find joy in, in, in when I see people grow uh, yeah. in the companies mm-hmm. uh, that, that we run, you know. Um, over the years, I've kind of learned that, you know, as a leader, it's about whenever we built something, like when I, when we built KSK Land, I built KSK Land, uh, six, seven years ago and six years ago now, I think, um, we're now a team of hundred, hundred mm-hmm. people. And whenever we, every time people always talk about, leaders always talk about companies growing. Yes. Um, but how I've seen it now, it's, a company is nothing but if it's not for its people. So when the people grow, the company grows. Correct. So I find little joys when whenever I see, you know, our team uh, win something, you know, mm-hmm. or take a challenge. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and that little challenge becomes their own legacy. And that's something that I always tell them. Um, if uh, I treat every single one of them as, as their own, whatever they do, it's it's their own little uh how to say their own little portfolio you know it's what they own within yep. the company um that's their legacy and 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 if i'm feeling that i i i wanted you know every one of the people in our companies to actually feel that yeah uh, and i think that's the leader that that probably i'm starting to become uh, yeah. and and that's also why things like uh plateau accelerator the fnb accelerator has now started to come on because mm-hmm. i feel that i think um being with people uh sharing stories uh sharing experiences is something that 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 i want to do more and more of uh, and that's the kind of leader that i would like to continue to become yeah Yeah, because my next question was basically where does that come from but it sounds like so like you had an early experience in in banking and that was more for yourself right yeah and now as you've grown as a leader over the past eight years you've seen what your people can do and how you've grown your team and i guess that's must must be where the confidence comes from yeah right Right. so it's kind of like it's reciprocal where they they trust in you you trust in them and then kind of builds up this confidence over time and then then the results come right yeah and and i guess the results and and what we create at the end of the day uh is a legacy that for me it's something that i'm i have for myself it's something that you Mm -hmm. know uh something that you built um and when people come and go um that sustainability of 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 that business and and what how it affects people around us and how it affects the community around us is what continues. Mm-hmm. And that's something for me. It's, you know, my personal sort of joy, you know, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, my yeah. personal pride. Yeah. Yeah. So is creating a legacy your main vision of success still? Yes, uh, still is. Still is. Um, okay. I believe um, it's just the start of the journey, really. Of course. Yeah. Yes. And so let's, let's do a little exercise. Say, say 20, 30 years from now, mm-hmm. uh, you have created a legacy. You are successful. Okay. And whatever that may mean. So, what, what does your day look like then after you have created a legacy? 20 to 30 years. Yes. Like what, what are you I doing in the morning? Close to 60 up? by then. Correct. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, what would a day be like? Um, 
I would imagine I will still be working. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, but uh, it would be a very nice balance. Uh, it would be more working from a perspective of uh, really sitting on top and allowing people to run uh, mm-hmm. the businesses, but at the same time, giving guidance. Yeah. Um, giving strategic guidance would, 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 would be something that I'd be doing, mm-hmm. uh, but at the same time, really finding time to, to really explore the world mm. uh, as well, continue mm-hmm. to do that. I think that's something that, that I want to do. So you're very curious by nature and you want to yes, see what correct, else is out there. Right? Uh, yes, that's, that's something that, you know, I'm not the kind of person who would just uh, sit and not not move. Um, this, this pandemic must be terrible for you. <laughs> yeah. Actually, I went from uh, traveling and exploring places all the time because that gives me a lot of inspiration, mm. just, just you yeah. know, uh, immersing myself in different cultures yeah. to actually really just staying at home and not, not yeah. moving very much. True, true, true. Uh, yeah. Okay, so for the next section, is a, it's kind of like my greedy section. Mm-hmm. So I, I kind of found out we're both alumni from the LSE. Mm. Uh, well, you more so. I was kind of. I did a general course program there. Okay, okay. okay. Yeah, so go, you know, go Beavers. Um, where were you staying in London? Were you in the halls or...? Uh, no, when I did, um, when I was in LSE, I was uh, doing my master's. Okay, so, so I was already out of the Makes halls. Makes sense, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was in Notting Hill. Notting Hill, okay, nice. Uh, what's your favorite memory of London? Oh, that's really difficult. Um, I guess uh, I spent close to a decade in London. Mm, that's a long um, time. Yeah, that's a long time. Uh, most of uh, the nicest memories come from the very little time uh, that London has, uh, which is when we have in the summers when, you know, there's one week of mm, real skies. summer. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, And that's when, you know, you get to go outside and yes, the really parks are beautiful. eat your lunch just yeah. in the parks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I it's a rare that. occurrence, right? Yeah. When I tell that to people, people think I'm crazy. But it, if, you're, if you've been in London for a long period yes, of time, yeah. you know, yeah. Well, I was fortunate. I was only there from 08 to 09. And mm. that was the one year the snowstorm was crazy. Like you yeah, go to the parks, yeah, you build yeah, giant yeah. snow. And then the next... The, Nothing, when everything yeah. stops. Correct. Yes. And then summer came on. It was very beautiful so I, I had very lucky one year there but I saw like all of it I guess <laughs> um, so going back I think you touched upon this earlier um, you did join a bank after you finished your masters mm-hmm. how much of that was defined by the herd mentality of like the LSE crowd I have to admit, definitely the herd mentality. It was okay. not just the herd mentality of the LSE crowd. It was, it was actually the everyone herd in London, mentality right? of the yeah. generation. That's true, that's true. Yeah. Um, you know, it's a lot like the generation today where they feel, oh, uh, banking is a little bit now taboo. and is it? they want to. I don't know. They want to explore yeah. the tech world. That's and, true. Tech, tech is very know, popular now. But I now. think that yeah. well, obviously a lot of things now are converging. Yes, uh, yeah. But yes, it was the herd mentality. Um, I have to admit, I think when, when, you know, like a lot of people, when, when we first come out as our first job, you know, we think, what do we really want to do? You know, what's yeah. our calling? And it's so difficult to know, right? That's true. Uh, yeah. It's just following the crew and following the mm. flow and taking on the job. And then I think discovering yourselves and Correct. Really what, you, yeah. what you truly, really want. I mean, either way, it wasn't probably a bad choice. I mean, no, you, it wasn't. you get paid, you learn some yeah, good technical definitely. skills. Definitely. I, guess. I yeah. think if, if there's one place that I, you know, um, got exposed to was really, I mean, when you are in investment banking in, in London, you really meet people from all walks of life, you yeah. know. Um, and that's where you, you, you get to learn how to build relationships with different types of people. True. 
I mean, that's what a lot of people don't really understand. A lot of banking is relationships at the end of the day, right? Correct. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So a lot of, like you, as you mentioned earlier, the, this whole banking thing was very uh, transformative, but I, I kind of want to get to the nuts and bolts of it because I only know a handful of bankers who actually lived and worked through the subprime crisis. Mm -hmm. right? And the craziest part is though, your department was the one responsible for CDOs yes, and true. residential mortgage-backed <laughs> yeah, securities. That's I tried not to talk about <laughs> these days. Yeah. But I mean, it's, it's a long time ago, but yeah. like, it wasn't your fault. You just got the job, right? Yeah. Um, what, what exactly was your job as a fresh grad going into such a, I guess, wild department at the time? Yeah. So I was in the graduate program and uh, for a year, I actually rotated uh, in risk um, mm. around the different areas like, you know, corporate banking. And, and then I was looking at um, Middle East, Africa and, and Asia. Mm -hmm. uh, and then uh, I went into leverage buyouts oh, wow, okay. uh, for a period, uh, looking at the European markets. And then uh, I ended up with the, my last rotation was actually in securitization. Ah, okay. And then... Um, I had to decide where I wanted to 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 be permanent in, and I and I actually decided securitization. <laughs> good good <laughs> I timing. Have to admit. And and what really, I don't know what really excited me about securitization is, is really the 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 structuring bit. Okay. That's where my geekiness comes from. It's Heavy really, maths, right? And yeah, it's yeah, it's yeah. just it's all structures, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's not really looking at corporates. It's yeah, really yeah, yeah. looking at really co uh, complicated financial structures and really how to build that together. Yeah. Um, and really at that time at risk, it was really all about active risk management. So I was sitting on the trading floor, really close to the business guys, you know, the traders who were trading the securitization bonds and so on. Yes. Those were the guys <laughs> yes. who were yes. doing the real stuff. Yeah. Um, and then really, you know, um, sitting together with them and collaborating and saying, okay, how do we make, how do we formulate these uh, structures? How do we formulate a CDO or how do we formulate an asset-backed uh, mm -hmm. security? And, yeah. you know, what, what do we need to put in place? So, you know, really putting in place uh, currency swaps and interest rate swaps, mm -hmm. you know, uh, yeah. and, under, and, and understanding what are the basket of securities that are being put together in this CDO. That's a crazy experience. So, I mean, I'm not going to go into the whole details of the crisis. You know, you could watch The Big Short on Netflix if you, if you don't know what this is about. <laughs> yeah. uh, but so being in a bank in London, what was Deutsche Bank's role in the whole crisis then? Were they just trading the toxic yeah. assets or? No, actually, all the banks were the same. Yeah, okay. um, we were really the arrangers, uh, the people who arranged the structures. Okay. Um, it's a little bit like... Um, like, you know, putting together an IPO, right? Or putting together a, a, a bond, uh, a launch of a, a bond, you know, in its yeah. different tranches. It's the same thing. Uh, it's and, and that's really what securitization is all about. And, mm -hmm. and that's what we did. Um, at the same time, obviously, um, you know, the, we also traded securitization bonds. We also held on to, to really the lower tranches of the bond, like the equity portion yeah. and, you know, uh, and then really, um, selling the, the triple A tranches of, of the securitization bonds. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. So a lot of my friends, um, who are bankers, they eventually transition to tech or outside of banking. Mm -hmm. Do you, they, they say they wasted too many years in the bank. Do you feel the same way? Well, no, I don't think so. Um, it was, a, in hindsight right now, it was a nice ride. I mean, it was four yeah. and a half years and mm -hmm. I think it was just, just, just the right amount mm -hmm. of time. Yeah. Um, it was 
really the high, as, as I said, you know, it was really the high of banking. And That's then true. really you see the crisis and then it's time to go. Mm-hmm. <laughs> when it picked up a little bit for me, it was really the time to go because yeah. I felt, oh, okay, it was enough. You know, picking up skill sets like learning from different people, looking at how things would bomb up. It kind um, of plateaued. Yeah, plateaued. So, yeah, because at that point, it becomes a, a ladder climbing exercise. Correct. And I guess you didn't feel the value was there for yeah. you. Okay. Um, do you still think it's a banking is a good value proposition for to get young kids' career started still? Or you think um, it's different now? I think it's a little bit different now, uh, but still interesting. Yeah. Uh, depending on on where you know your uh, everybody's passions lies right yeah. i mean if you if you're the the geeky nature that loves numbers and quants mm. why not True. i think mm. banking is an interesting place to go into if you're the type of person that loves uh selling deals then yeah of course you know it's yeah. a fantastic place to 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 learn um but if you you know i always think as young individuals, sometimes people don't understand the other side of their mm. the, their interests and passion, and and that could also drive you to have a career out of it. And True. I think when in our generation, a lot of that, especially when we're Asian, that doesn't come out very much. Mm. Uh, and now I think the the younger kids are uh, you know have that a little bit more open platform for them to go to. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. so I guess you would probably. Uh, if you have your own kids or you have nieces or maybe other kids you mentor, yeah. you, you would tell them to maybe keep their options more open? Yes, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> and if they are creative, these days I tell them, you know, go learn, you know, how to code or, yeah, yeah. or something, you know. Correct. I think uh, explore your creative side as well. Yeah. Okay. So I want to talk about the family business a little bit. Mm-hmm. So back in 1978, mm-hmm. your father started a company called Industrial and Commercial Insurance. Mm-hmm. Right? He, he actually bought over. Industrial oh, he bought it over. Yeah. Okay. So he bought it over. Mm-hmm. Uh, then in over a decade, he managed to start generating business uh, where the insurance side was uh, writing over 200 million ringgit in gross premiums. Yeah. Right. And then fast forward two and a half decades or so. You started writing over one billion gross premiums yeah. uh, under the name of Kernia Insurance at that point in time, right? Um, that's a pretty crazy shadow to step into. Yes. Um, were you scared initially? Um, yes, I have to admit, uh, it's not easy to step into the shadows of a man who, who, who is so visionary. Yeah. Um, you know, and and really have the kind of guts to really say. Uh, let's just do it. Yeah. Um, but on the other side of the equation, because I grew up with him, mm-hmm. uh, he, you know, he's not so scary after all. You, you know, know both sides. Yeah, yeah. You, you see both sides. Yeah. Um, more, more than being scared, actually, uh, for me, it's really, I find a lot of, uh, I'm actually, I feel a lot of times I feel actually very lucky to have him mm-hmm. uh, by my side mm-hmm. uh, and and uh, when I first wanted to go into the business um, I remember him telling me um, why 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 are you not why are you looking elsewhere why not you just come home and work for me and I was like what can I contribute to your you know really large and stable organization and yeah. and for him he said look you know um, I'm looking for a fresh perspective mm. a new perspective um, uh, that that was one of the most serious conversations I had with him, and you know he he told my my dad told me he said you know in in every business, 
to run a very sustainable business, it's not about being stable or constant. Uh, it's about change and change is constant. Yeah. Um, and change is how we as leaders want to drive that change and how we look forward into the future. Yeah. And for that to happen, uh, it's not one person alone and that we need to have fresh new perspectives. And so, you know, he said, would you consider coming back and working by my side? And and then, you know, I'm not looking for somebody who would agree with me all the time. Mm. And I know it's going to be a painful exercise for (laughs) us to be debating all the time. But then it would be an interesting combination. Yeah. And that... Uh, kind of struck me or at least gave me the the confidence to come home mm-hmm. it was you know it was quite daunting for me to to decide you know uh, having a, a already a, quite a good life in London oh yeah for sure yeah. should I be coming home right yeah uh, so so that conversation is a conversation to remember that's uh, it's very great to have someone like that as a mentor and yeah. and that's quite quite insightful you yeah. know a lot of I mean a lot of guys who established such a, a large legacy, uh, maybe that's it for them. Yeah. But, you know, it's it's great to see that innovation was still at his heart and, yeah. and change. And uh, he had the foresight to know that, you know, it, he needed to mix it up. Yeah. Right? Okay. Yeah. And so uh, your story kind of begins here. You come back, right? Yeah. And and based off my research um, and the backdrop of this, mm-hmm. so for more than a decade, Kernia was writing consistently every year, one to 1.2 billion in written premiums mm-hmm. without fail, right? Yeah. I, I, I suspect at the time, uh, you probably had the full monopoly on motor insurance or something like this, right? Correct. Except for that one year, 08, 09, when yeah. I think premiums dipped by more than 50%, but it, yeah. it recovered really fast. Yeah. Um, and at, at that time of history, premiums were set by uh, the tariff by the government, Bank Nagara, right, mm-hmm. the national bank. Mm-hmm. And despite over a decade, though, you know, claims were always consistent. You guys always had a very consistent gross margin of 20 to 30%, right? Yeah. It was a very good business. Mm-hmm. Uh, cost wasn't rising. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I guess... At the time, I, I did read that some banks were complaining that uh, the, the, the fixed rates were hurting them, yeah. but you guys seemed okay. But at that, despite having a good business that was printing a lot of money in cash, mm-hmm. you guys decided to sell. Mm-hmm. So wh- what was the decision behind that? Um, I think uh, in hindsight, it was really about looking into the future and, 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 and really um, the legacy was to build... For us, it was really about, the vision was really about building a conglomerate, not just in insurance mm. itself. So when, when, when is the right time uh, <laughs> so uh, to diversify, you know? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and at that point in time, when, when we were riding high as well, there was a lot of suitors uh, that came to our door. It was very, very tempting. Okay. Um, we, we never, um, it was not our intention to completely exit from insurance. And mm. this is why, you know, we, we still had uh, Indonesia and Thailand with us mm-hmm. because we thought that those were very interesting emerging markets at mm. that time. And, and, you know, typical entrepreneurs where we say, oh, okay, it seems difficult. No, let's just go and do it. <laughs> yeah. Where it's more challenging, there's always more opportunities and that's yes. what we thought. Um, and in Malaysia... To be frank, as a family business, uh, just like the banks, you know, we are a financial institution yeah. and capital adequacy ratios, the, the requirements were getting mm. straighter. And, and we thought, you know, this is a nice time to kind of um, diversify. And, yeah. and that's why uh, we sold the Malaysian business mm-hmm. um, with the intention that, you know, uh, we sold it to to someone who, who we, we today, you know, they're keeping the legacy of the brand yes. and, and yeah. We see that you know we see a story behind it, and mm-hmm. it's still nice to see that going. Yes, yeah. continues. Correct. No, and, no one wants to see it go and away. And for us, you know, um, 
even after we sold, we continue to think about what we could do with the insurance business. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's where, uh, you know, the tech ventures portfolio came yeah. in. That's where Sunday came in. Correct. And, uh, and if we had not sold, um, I think the journey of building Sunday would have been as an insure tech end yes. to end would have yes. been a lot tougher. Oh, it would have been tougher. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Cause that was yeah. one of my questions later on. Yeah. So you already answered it, but okay. Yeah. Um, so not many will get to sell a company for billions of ringgits and you yeah. were integral to the process, I'm sure. Yeah. Right? Cause you came back to lead. Yeah. Um, what's the most important thing to focus on to, in- to ensure such a high profile deal goes through? Uh, a lot of grit and tenacity. The mm-hmm. deal took us uh, at least two years mm-hmm. uh, to get done. Um, there's a lot of technicality that goes into a deal like oh, this. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, so yeah, uh, uh, it's all the you know the 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 power of negotiation and and obviously the the experience of being in Deutsche helped. You did LBOs, right? Yeah. Yes. So, so that was really good. Correct. Yeah, so, yeah. so it wasn't the terminologies or anything that got to me, but it was really the, the, the length of time that you had to go yeah. through, um, you know, due diligence processes and, and really negotiating commercial terms. It's never always just about numbers. It's mm. also about, you know, um, doing a deal like that is also to making sure that the people are protected mm. uh, in the deal when, yeah. when we leave. Um, and that the business continues to grow yeah. uh, and that there is value Correct. still. Yeah. Yeah. You just don't want it to disappear after that. Yeah. Okay. Uh, then, interestingly enough, so you guys sell it for $1.6 billion, uh, So you guys are well capitalized. But then out of this, you know, KSK group is born, right? Yeah. And you guys listed immediately again. Mm-hmm. So why did you list again? Um, we... Actually, uh, just a correction. We didn't list again. So at that time, um, when we sold uh, Korea Malaysia, we were already listed at the holding co. Okay. Uh, so when I took over as CEO, we were a listed company. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then when we started uh, KSK Land uh, a year after, I decided to we decided to delist the group actually. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, so it, it, private. So when you did sell Kernia, it was more of just the assets. Yeah, it was just ah, the okay, so you kept the company. Asset at the I see. Yeah. Okay, then that's why you were still listed yes, but under a new name. Listed, yeah. Okay, fair enough. And then, so what was the idea of taking the group private again, and what was that process like? Um, yeah, it was a privatization exercise, uh, just like any uh, corporate exercise. And the reason why we wanted to do that was because uh, we wanted to take a back seat and sort of say, okay, let's um, take it private, uh, readjust ourselves. Um, because it's not easy being a group when you know you are an insurance company and, and the group has always been operating as an insurance uh, uh, company. All your... Uh, structures are yeah. all built for that. And then when we wanted to diversify, it's going into a new direction, right? Yes, Saying, correct. okay, we have two core businesses doing insurance and property development. So that, what does that mean for the group? Uh, and I think we all know that when we are listed, it comes with a price of compliance. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, we, at that point in time, you know, we, we could not, uh, give, uh, the public shareholders that kind of value anyway, mm. uh, because we were diversifying. So it was, it was a collective decision to just say, let's go private, mm-hmm. um, diversify and rebuild, uh, the property development, yeah. um, and, and see where it takes us. In a sense is you guys, 
uh, were sticking to your guns of being true entrepreneurs, right? Yeah. And uh, it wouldn't have been fair to probably put that onto the risk of the investors. Yeah. So right. it makes more sense to get partners or just, you know, do it with yourself to, to right. dig back and, you know, take this huge leap into Correct. the uncertainty. Okay. Makes sense. Okay. Uh, with the experience that you have now, obviously hindsight 2020, mm -hmm. would you wish your family did something different with Kurnia? Any seller's regret? Um, no, I don't think there's um, regret. Uh, I think it's actually now more exciting than not. Mm -hmm. uh, as I said, because we now have even, you know, tech ventures uh, like Carmana, mm -hmm. Auto Marketplace. You know, we have Sunday, which is an insure tech. You know, we're building in the region where we started off in Thailand. And now we're, this month, we're heading into Indonesia. Mm. Um, we have... Uh, KSK land uh, that you know we started off as a you know a, a when we started off in property development, people were all really surprised and everyone <laughs> yeah. was like, and you started off as your Econly as your debut development. Yes, yes. A huge one. What are you doing? You know? Yeah. Um and looking back, you know, uh now everybody's watching us and saying, Ah, what are these guys doing again? You know, yeah, what are these yeah. guys doing again? And even now, as as Kaskelen, we're evolving into something like a lifestyle property developer. And and when I when I look at all the businesses that we've now created, and speaking, you know, and and looking at the type of customers that we're going to have, or at least we have, you know, there is there is a lot of similarities all over. It's all mm. about the customers. Yeah. And I think the journey would not have been so possible, or at least would not have moved so quickly. Yeah. Um, had we not sold uh, Korea Malaysia as well. Mm. Uh, that was an interesting one. Yeah. Um, but it was really, a, uh, in hindsight, in all honesty, it was a breakthrough one, uh, I think, for, for at least for, for, for me and, and, and for our chairman as well. Because it's hard as an entrepreneur to, to build something from ground up and say, let's sell. Yeah, uh, that's true. Emotionally, it takes a toll on you. Yeah. And, how do you manage that? Yeah. And once you have actually gone through that motion and understand that even when you sell, it's still a legacy for you. That's a breakthrough. Yeah. Uh, and I think it's a breakthrough from en for any entrepreneur. Yes. Um, letting go doesn't mean that you don't own it. Mm. Uh, and, and I think that's a lesson that, that we took uh, home. Yeah. Uh, and, and that actually helps us to drive uh, the businesses that we built today yeah. in the way yeah. we perceive how we create value. Yeah. In a sense, it was very serendipitous. It's yeah. just the right timing. Yeah. And it just kind of worked out that way. But it's like you said, it was very necessary. Otherwise, innovation could have been a lot slower, probably yeah. a different flavor, right. um, not as much fast impact. Yeah. Right. And I think you need that nimbleness. Yeah. And I think freeing that up, privatizing allows you to do that. Yeah, right. Correct. It's kind of like why a lot of companies prefer just to keep taking VC money. It's, yeah. it's available. They could have just, you know, there's no need to go public. Right. Yeah. So, um, so that's a, that's a very incredible track record for, for your age. Right. Not many people will go through such, so many things. Mm -hmm. um, but what's clear to me, like is when reading the PR of that time, you know, like, there's just you're still have crazy drive yeah is it because you feel this is more of your father's legacy and you still are just like you said earlier still mm. building your own legacy mm. um yeah i think it's in a way it's both our legacies mm -hmm. uh, he allows yeah. me the freedom to do what we want yeah. uh with his name <laughs> that's <laughs> on, yeah. on the on the wall yeah. uh that's not easy you yeah, know for, yeah. for any founder that's true um to have that trust to say, okay, what, what, what are you doing? You know, uh, that's my name on the wall. I mean, KSK yeah. Land, KSK Group is his name. Yeah. But, uh, 
But um, yeah, I think what continues to drive me is this ability to to have the. It's okay. <laughs> um, what really drives me is and continues to drive me is is again seeing things move and grow yeah. um, and proving to the market that we can always do things differently. Mm-hmm. Um, and and that is I think something that I don't want to stop. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. So do you think a Connolly will be a huge part of your legacy once completed? Then. Yeah, I would like to think so. Yeah. <laughs> So I saw an interesting quote back in 2015. You said A Connolly will be marketed to 50% foreign and 50% local. Mm-hmm. But obviously a lot of things have changed since 2015, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, li- and from my very limited understanding of property development, yeah. I, it's really out of my depth. But uh, you guys, uh, from what I understand, are selling at 3,000 per square foot, right? Mm-hmm. So what kind of secret do you know that we don't know about? Is there some latent demand locally or has it changed and you're going to be marketing to just wealthy foreigners or what's the idea? Um. We're now marketing at about 3,350 wow. uh, yeah. ringgit per square foot. Uh, and uh, it's now about 70% foreign and 30% okay. local. Um, I think the, the, what I always believe, um, at least when we started A Conley, is that there's always this um, niche group of buyers yeah. uh, that understands branded residences and the value mm. that it brings to the table and a lot of these people are global they, they, yeah, they understand the quality and, and the beauty about branded residences is that whether you're in KL or whether you're in Singapore or whether you're around the world whether you're in yeah. London the quality is the same it has to prevail yeah. um, and that's really true branded residences and when we started A Conley there was it was really Really, this concept of branded residences was still in its infancy stage in in Malaysia. Yeah. Um. And and that journey was really um not an easy one, I have to say, because it was really about educating people about what that value is. Yeah. Really, truly, what are you paying for? Yeah. Um. And 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 that is truly what uh we believe at KSK Land. Uh, yeah. When we started as a property developer. Um, when we say we're a lifestyle developer, it's really about understanding the customers and the target of customers and what they really want. Um, and mm-hmm. I think that's really the future of, of any business that we do in any industry today. It's you have to understand what the customer trends are like, what their lifestyles are like today and looking into the future a little bit, what their lifestyles are going to be. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Property development is no longer... Traditionally, a lot of people think about property development. It's all about uh, building, you know, shell and core or really treating the property like a commodity. Yes, correct. Um, but still, yeah, but when we started KSK Land, we said, why Why is property a commodity? Because you pay so much for it. Mm-hmm. And, and, and even if you're buying it for investment, someone's going to live in it or... Yeah. or, or or play in, in the space or really work in the space. Yeah. So when we think about property development, I think we think of ourselves as like the stage makers where, you know, we are creating a frame for somebody to live in or somebody to play in or somebody to work in. Yeah. And when you start having that mentality and when you start really thinking through that, you start thinking about not just the hardware, but also the software, the yeah. content of what really will come in. 
Um, and and you know when we started as Kesken, nobody knew who we were. <laughs> yes, Brandon. Um, and when we were at that, the Acorne is really at that. The location is really at the heart of the city, and we yeah. looked around the area and we said, okay, why not create branded residences? Mm. If um, people don't know our brand, at least people know who Kempinski is, and people mm. know who you is, and and all these designers who are yeah. really, you know. Um, They've been in in whatever that they've done. They're really those these yeah. crafters that've been crafting yeah. their their in their trade for such a long time, um, and that's the value that they bring. Yeah. Uh, and we 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 as the property developer is just the orchestrators of that. Yeah, uh, and that's really um, coming from from really the, the the where where we think of customers and customer journeys um, is because of our insurance background is what we are used mm. to. Because in insurance, we just sell a piece of paper. Yeah. Um, we sell trust and we sell journeys. We sell services. Yeah. Uh, and, and we took that DNA on to property development. Because I think a lot of times I find when I came into the industry, I realized people were just looking at property development like, ah, they take it for granted that you're building something and that you can visualize mm-hmm. that thing. Yeah. But when you do that, it becomes a commodity. Yes. Um, and it, it shows up in terms of the quality um, the details, right? And I, I like what you're saying mostly because when, when I did first move to Asia, like uh, I did notice that, you know, I, I even went to luxury yeah. apartments in KL and it's just, you know, it's just not there. You know, yeah. it, it looks very nice on, on the outside, but right. if you look closer to details and after a few years, okay. you start to see things falling yeah. apart. And yeah. I think you're right. You know, if you really want to do true like uh, lifestyle, yeah. it will come at a premium. And there probably is a market, like you're saying, probably yeah. abroad where, where someone will look for that. So with that in mind, you know, th- can you maybe walk me through how you think about the, the product as in terms of each room? Because the largest room I saw was 1,300 square feet. Mm. And then on average, maybe around 1,100. Mm. So are you trying to balance like the economics of profitability or because my thought would be like a a lifestyle buyer would want more space Mm -hmm. so you would give more floor space but then maybe lower the price Mm -hmm. or so what what are the thoughts around creating that product like that um i think it's the absolute value of the property as well um i think um luxury definitely comes at a price right because of the quality uh quality is is definitely not cheap um and so when you want to have that kind of built of space, then obviously that's why it commands that kind of price per square foot. But then we always think, you know, it's a little bit like a truffle. You could buy, if you could afford it, you'd buy the whole truffle Mm. or you could buy a quarter of the truffle. Okay, Um, And and I think um, when you're living in the city as well, I think our smallest apartment is uh, 700 square feet. Mm -hmm. So, when you have good designers in spaces like uh, Steve Leung or when you have uh, you and, and Kelly Hoppen, they understand uh, designing spaces and, and how to make that space uh, look like it's big enough for you. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and that's what really what we did with Econe. Yeah. Uh, and when you're really at the heart of the city, it's not about 4,000 square feet space. It's really about what, what do you do with the space, yeah. you know, whether it's 1,000 square feet or whether it's uh, 700 square feet. Um, so just like uh, maybe an example, like our 700 square feet apartment has 
um, every apartment has a balcony. But what we really um, did was in, in really the, you know, the true meticulous details in the design was instead of really doing sliding doors uh, for to, to go out to the balcony, we did foldable doors that could open uh, up completely. Okay. Because we wanted to make you feel like, hey, you know, your balcony could also be part of your indoor space and mm-hmm. not just as yeah. an outdoor space. And when you are, you know, 30 floors up uh, in a very tall building, that's where you get to enjoy the the the, the gust of wind and the view. And yeah. the view you and become part of the city essentially. Yeah, you become part yeah. of the city, yeah. and I think you know that makes a big difference, right? Yes, in, yes. in that, and I think that's that's we we really wanted to show what design could really do. Okay, um, interesting. For so you're, you yeah. as well. So you're really driving the concept of design, but it's a property development, yeah. right? Just like if you look at a tech startup, design and product go hand in hand, right? Yeah. You really need good design to solve the problems. Right. And yeah. Just like, you know, in tech design, you would talk about UI UX, Correct. right? Everybody's yeah. talking about UI UX design yeah. these days. Um, but for us as property developers, we talk about customer journeys and customer journey design. Yeah. Uh, and I'm, we're, as Kenskilan, we're starting to go into that as well yeah. from the learning from Acorn Lay. Mm. You know? It makes sense because you know if you go to a five star hotel, this the space is limited. But how? Yeah, it's like it's like you said, design. Yeah. There's so much going on into the room just to make it convenient. You don't realize right. it though. You that's the thing. Yeah, you but walk yeah, in and yeah. the things is conveniently yeah. just there for you, right? Yeah. But that's part of your customer Correct. journey design. Yeah. yeah. So like if you become a first time home, if you're a first time home buyer, then you start to notice actually. Yeah. It's like I find it very difficult to make it as nice as designers do in hotels. So I, I could see where you're where you're coming from. So let's talk a little bit about the, the tech startups then very briefly, uh, because that's also part of the, the, the group, right? Yeah. You started Sunday Insurance, right? And yes. it's like you said, it's naturally a very strategic investment from current years past, case, case past. Um, and currently, are these companies funded off the balance sheet of the group? or? Um, yeah, we seeded uh, okay, the seeded. companies uh, off the book. Uh, but Sunday actually has already uh, raised the Series A round um, ah, nice. okay. in 2018. And uh, 2019, actually, we closed an A2 round. Okay. Uh, and, and we just closed a convertible bridge round. Okay. So we have... Uh, People like um, Kona Capital, uh, based out of Washington, with us. We have Vertex Ventures. Mm, uh, okay. Um, uh, Very good names. Us. Yeah, and yeah. Line Ventures as well. Um, and and our newest uh, member uh, to our Sunday Sunday investors is actually SCB 10X, mm. the venture capital fund of, of SCB in Thailand. I, I find this fascinating because most VC I talk to. If they hear family business and tech, they're like, no. So how how did you go about actually getting to onboard VC to trust you as founders and you guys running the business as also a family business? Yeah. So that's, that's, that's the part where, you know, um, it's a testament to us, uh, a lot of times when, like what you say, you know, a lot of times it's not just, you know, tech, tech VCs. It's a lot of people when they hear family business, they run the other direction because they say, oh, you know, how can it be professional? Um, but I think that's where, um, as a CEO, that's that's one of the things I always keep in mind is that as a as a family business, there is we are all professionals. Um, we have to think of the business as not just our own, but that we are guardians of the business. Yeah. Um, and that's what being professional is really all about, and keeping an, an arm's length. Um, and that's why we we even for Sunday we started it as a tech venture as part of our tech ventures portfolio because we felt that it was very important to keep it alive as a tech startup on its own account. Yes. Um, but there is always merit in us bringing the experience of what we had uh, yes. running an insurance business because Correct. at the end of the day when 
most of these uh, tech VCs look at Sunday Insurance, they realize that we're actually building not just an insure type, but really a, still a licensed insure type, which means it's really a financial institution. Yeah. Essentially, it's, it's going to be uh, end-to-end full-stack insurance, right. but technology-driven yes, for Sunday technology. Insurance. Yes, right? correct. Yeah. Um, our, so, and for Carmina, it's a basically an auto, second-hand automobile marketplace. Yes, right? correct. Uh, are both of these companies profitable, or what's the current mission at hand, if not? Um, we, Carmana is about now, uh, four years in, in the making and, uh, we're not yet profitable, but we will be, uh, nice. in two years time. Uh, definitely we're, we're on track for that. And Sunday, uh, as a growing insurance company, uh, definitely, I think, uh, we, we're three years old and, um, definitely we're not yet profitable, but we will be as well yeah. in two, about two years time. Yeah. And one of my other questions was, I think you already answered this, was like, you know, I, I was kind of wondering why you didn't keep the insurance and then just layer Sunday on top, right? But you basically said um, that wouldn't have worked. It would have been slower. Yeah. So a lot of family businesses haven't exited, though. Mm-hmm. So how would you give them advice to maybe then approach something like that to innovate? Um, or is it not possible? <laughs> no, I think it's always possible. Yeah. Uh, I think it innovation starts from culture and it's all about culture building. Okay. It's about the mindsets of people. Like, for example, for us, I mean, even though we built uh, Sunday and Karmana outside of, of, of our core, uh, really, I mean, KSK Land, in a way, when we started, you know, people always think, oh, property development is a traditional business. Yes. Um, yeah. But uh, about a year and a half, because of what we did in, in, in the exposure into tech, we um, started moving towards the agile way of working mm-hmm. uh, and the entire KSK land uh, and even in KSK group itself. Uh, and today we are fully agile. Yeah. Um, and that was really important because if anybody understands the agile way of working and you know one of the fundamental agile principles is really to be nimble and, yeah. and having a form of structure framework but at the same time allowing that structure framework allows you to be nimble to really go out and you know test and and then iterate and then learn and then you know yeah. go about doing the same formula again and this whole test iterate learn approach gives people the courage to try out new things. Mm-hmm. And that is really the, the, the mother of all, right? That's really yeah. the, the, the start of being of innovation because it's not that people don't have the ability to innovate. It's about the courage to yeah. want to innovate. Yeah. You know, the and, being oh, scared yeah. to fail. And also um, the, the grit to maybe uh, continue, st- continue if it's not yes, really working correct, the way you think. it's not really yeah. working. Yeah, and yeah. A lot of times, you know, in, in many large organizations, we tend to say, oh, okay, it's going to fail and let's just not do it. Yeah, or correct. <laughs> let's make sure we plan till it's 100% foolproof. And really, there is nothing mm, that's 100% that. foolproof. Yeah, and yeah. in today's world, things are moving even faster. So yeah. everyone is really forced to innovate. Yeah. And so I think, that that really is then part of part, part and parcel of this whole culture building. Yeah. Um, so I think every other fa- every other corporate or every other family business would be able to do that. Yeah. But it really starts with that mindset, um, yeah. being really open minded about it, and and really telling everybody, hey, it's okay to fail, but fail small, fail fast. Yeah. And, and let's pick it up and, yeah. and, and learn from that again. And for KSK, that manifested in essentially 
infusing agile into the yeah. corporate business yeah. and, and basically every part of it, even the tech startups, right? Yeah. Of course, which, which is quite natural for tech startups. Yeah. Um, I, I would love to have actually more discussion on agile, but I don't think we have enough time for that. Maybe you have to grab, steal your time in the future yeah. for that. Uh, so for Sunday, why, why did you start in Thailand and not Malaysia then? I feel that you have such a strong base here. Mm-hmm. Um, what, what was the I mean, idea? We, we've had exposure into, you know, Malaysia, Thailand and Indonesia for the longest time. Yeah. Uh, when we sold Korea Malaysia, we kept our licenses and insurance businesses in oh, Thailand and okay. Indonesia. So those are markets that we really understand and, you know, uh, the tech talents were actually interesting in in in, in Thailand. Uh, yes, they have their own when ecosystem. When we first started, yeah. yeah, they have already a, a a little bit more of an advanced ecosystem. When we started Sunday in Karmana, yeah, um, and I think customers are really difficult to please in in Thailand as well. Um, yes. But uh, yes. the you know the understanding of. Uh, the savviness in understanding how to utilize technology as an enabler yeah. um, was already a little bit more prevalent there at that time. Uh, coupled with the fact that we have the insurance license in Thailand still. That helps a lot. Uh, that helps a lot. Full, full underwriting insurance, right? Yes, full yeah. underwriting okay. insurance license. So that combination um, drove us to actually start in Thailand first. Makes a lot of yeah. sense. Yeah, you had a lot of synergies and the know-how, essentially. Yeah. And you're right. I think the ecosystem is very robust. Yeah. Um, I worked there for, for a year. And you're right. The, the customer, I found out uh, we were doing rideshare. You could segment them very differently. Whereas other markets, there's like only one or two yeah, segments. Correct. So it could be quite quite mature in the sense, correct. in terms of retail. Right. And, and it's very complex yes. with the customer segments. You yeah. know, So I, I, we figured if you can master that customer segmentation in Thailand, you could actually that's really master yes. yeah, point. <laughs> the other parts of yeah. Asia. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it's more of the process than yeah. instead of the actual answer, right? Okay. Uh, and so for what would Sunday's main comparable be or aspirations? Would you say like Lemonade or Oscar in the US? Or? Actually, we met when we when we started our Sunday journey. I went to the US and even to Europe. And actually, we've met all of them. We oh, met, you met all the nice. Yeah, we okay. met Oscar. We met uh, Babylon Health. We met... Wow. Uh, okay. Um, actually, all of them. Yeah, you really. did your homework. <laughs> yeah, we did our homework, and yeah. we even spoke to Lemonade. We spoke to Slice. You know, we spoke mm. to so many of them, and it was really a, a joy actually to yeah. to work yeah. with them. And uh, actually, all of them solidified, uh, you know, and gave us the courage to actually continue with Sunday and say, oh, "Okay, we're not crazy." Yeah. Uh, to actually. <laughs> Start an insure tech in in Southeast Asia and be the first yeah. ones in Southeast Asia to to be licensed. You're quite you're quite early into the game, yeah. right? It's only like now that's very popular to yeah. look at insurance correct, and fintech correct. in that kind of area. Suddenly, insurance is sexy again. Yes, right? yes. Yeah, there's there's still a lot to do with it. I mean, yeah. and there's the proof point is Lemonade's IPO, yeah. right? Um, so, what are the main challenges to go full stack insurance tech insurance in Southeast Asia then? Um, I think it's 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 maneuvering. Um, you know this proof of concept or at least allowing people to understand what insurance truly is all about mm-hmm. um, there is a lot of cra- you know craze and, and a lot of hype in insurance and insure tech today um, and when we started even today a lot of people are actually playing in the peripherals you know maybe yes, you're doing claims technology or maybe you're doing in the distribution channel but really to do end-to-end full stack uh, and make allowing people to understand this and, and what that truly takes to do this, uh, it's not easy and there's a lot of moving parts. Um, so it's about constantly trying to see uh, which parts you want to build 
and mm, really par- which parts you want to you yeah. know which parts you you really want to own and which parts you really mm. want to collaborate with some of mm-hmm. the other people mm-hmm. as well mm-hmm. um i think that 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 is the part that you know uh keeps us going all the time yeah, yeah i mean it's, it's very challenging from a consumer standpoint and being a millennial insurance is quite hard to grasp you know correct, correct. and it's and, and of course it's very complex yeah. and then the whole user experience uh, of it's, it's so bad yes it's yeah. so bad yeah. and so that's why i think that was really um what drove us to start sunday as well really yeah. to say let's start with a clean sheet of paper yeah okay and then for for uh carmana a very similar question yeah. Uh, and, and especially looking at cars from malaysia why, why not start in malaysia versus bangkok um Interestingly, actually, when, when we when we were in Thailand, because in Thailand as well, uh, we started with you know with a very huge uh, motor insurance portfolio, and we saw a lot of breaks in the market uh, mm. in the motor market, in very the auto market, yeah. very fragmented yeah. Yeah, yeah, in, yeah, yeah. in Thailand, but a very interesting one. Um, uh, and so, again, you know, we felt that the tech ecosystem was a lot better back then uh, that was like four years ago yeah um and it was a tough one to crack because mm, mm. it's a little bit like being in an inner circle and, and <laughs> yes yeah in thailand so 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 that's really why we started as well okay so you saw the problems you had the network also like mainly you were in motor insurance so it yeah. made a lot of right. sense um would you say that your biggest competitor then at the moment is Carsum? I mean, they've raised so much money, right? Yeah, they yeah. raised so much money. And um, well, I think uh, we've actually kind of evolved from being a marketplace to, to being a one-stop services provider. So um, over the course of the four years for Carmana, we've, you know, our main business is really providing the services like financial referral services to to even refinancing uh, referrals. Mm-hmm. That's where we get our monies from. Um, to even uh, car inspections, extended warranty, car insurance, yeah. maintenance services. Mm-hmm. That's really our ecosystem. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's really interesting to us. Uh, so in a way, I would view a lot of the car dealers in Thailand more as our competitors yeah. uh, because we're breaking into their market or at least we're, we're really diving into the market. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Fair enough. Fair enough. Um, so then how would you say you guys plan to compete against another big marketplace that has a lot of traction then? Um, the, we, we are actually moving this coming maybe next year uh, we're actually thinking of doing a little bit of lending ourselves um, ah, because okay. we've already had experience in, nice. in in actually doing you know because a lot of the banks and, and really the leasing houses are all uh, partners for us mm-hmm. uh, at yeah. Carmana um, we also do something called close financing uh, oh. it's a, already a little bit like lending in, in, in Thailand mm-hmm. um, that's that's really the, the unique uh, part about the Thailand market mm-hmm. um, and we want to dive further into that okay. yeah alright uh, would KSK ever consider doing CVC corporate venture capital even if it was something like Salesforce where they only wrote very small 50k checks just to get the network the knowledge and the information flow yeah actually uh, actually yes um, it's funny because we start People, when, when I tell people this, they said, hey, you're, you're like a venture builder. And then now you're going, um, you're saying, oh, okay, we've now got the track record of doing this. So why not build a CVC? Mm. Uh, yes, that's a natural step. And actually, as we speak, actually, we're building KSK Ventures. Oh, very nice. <laughs> are, are we breaking it here? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> nice. You're the first to know. Oh, yes, thank you. <laughs> yeah. um, 
Okay, so for the, the last section, the pièce de résistance, right? Platter, the food accelerator. Yes. Right? I think this is why we're talking today because it's the main focus for now at least, right? Mm -hmm. So what exactly is platter and what are you trying to achieve with it? So um, in A. Conley, uh, we have a, a lifestyle retail uh, uh, component um, and and it's 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 not a mall uh, and when we looked at it we said hey you know uh, we wanted to create uh, on on level one we wanted to create a food hall mm. um, because I think food is something that obviously will continue I mean yeah. everybody loves to eat and and I think the F&B experience is evolving yeah. um, in a way where you know, COVID or not, I think everybody wants to feel like they're part of a community. Yeah. Um, and I think that's why food halls are now against thriving, uh, even pre-COVID. And mm. I think now, even post-COVID, it will continue to thrive. Yes. You know? yeah. um, and w when you want to go out and, and have a meal with somebody, you want to have an experience. Um, and that's what the Plaster Food Hall is really all about. Um, but this COVID put us into some perspective. Uh, when I thought about it, I said, you know, when we talk to a lot of F&B uh, entrepreneurs, I realized that they are all, you know, sole proprietors and, you know, they are all SMEs. Mm -hmm. And what they really, tr what really truly drives them is their food business. And, yes. and, you know, the passion for food, the passion for food and yeah. creating food and, and, you know, creating new menus. But what they really hate is all the, you <laughs> the know, the technical type. services, yes. and, and 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 as they as they continue to grow their business, they 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 struggle with also the parts of how do I grow? It's a very lonely mm. place as an entrepreneur. Mm. Um, and so you know, taking a back seat, and when I thought about it, I said, yeah, you know, taking on from my own experience, you know, building new businesses over and over again, from Karmana to Sunday to to KSK Land. It, it can be a very lonely place yes, if yes. you if you have nobody to share your experiences with or share your learnings with or really uh, have about you know uh, a board to to a something board to actually bounce off ideas mm. um, and 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 then from from the tech experience that 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 I had I was looking at you know all the uh, tech accelerators that were going on and and what were they really doing you know um, and in retail even in F and B you have to start thinking about how you want to partner with people. Yeah. And whilst we are not, um, you know, we're not the specialists in creating uh, food, you know, uh, that's, that's not where our experience comes from. But our experience is in creating these designing spaces, creating that experience, um, understanding how to grow a business, understanding how numbers work, mm -hmm. you know, um, understanding financial models. So why not give that back? Mm -hmm. uh, and partner up with these people. And that's where Platter Accelerator was born. Mm -hmm. It's not just about giving, you know, uh, financial help to these guys, but yeah. also giving the financial help and allowing them to grow. Yeah. Because if they grow, we grow. Uh, if they grow in the space, we grow in the space together yeah. with them. Yeah. And when I imagine Platter as a food hall, uh, it's not, you know, this is where the example of hardware and software comes in. It's about creating a community um, of like-minded individuals again together mm -hmm. um, and why not you know um, as much as we uh, in KSK Land are giving in whether we're providing the technical services to to the F&B entrepreneurs or even mentoring services to the entrepreneurs we're also learning from them yeah um, 
you know that 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 continued passion in what they do in the food business is also an art, yeah. um, and that's something we could always learn from them because it's something you know when they create food uh, journeys, they are also thinking about what their customers want, and their customers are our customers. Yeah. So we feed off them as much as they would feed off us, uh, and I think that's that's really what um, we intend to do actually mm-hmm. at the accelerator. Yeah. So essentially, to distill it, uh, you have a food hall. Yeah. And tied to it also is the accelerator. And yeah. you saw a gap in the market where there's a lot of passionate foodies and food entrepreneurs. Yeah. Uh, and but they may need some help beyond the money, right? Yeah. Because I did notice that you are you are accepting companies with two year traction. Yeah. But to me, like if you're cash flow positive two year traction, what what's the other value you're bringing? Correct. Right. So yeah. so it sounds like you're bringing. Uh, it's, it's specifically for the profile who need that help, who maybe are not as savvy. Yeah. Right. And a lot of them uh, come to us right now. I mean, we were at the moment, you know, doing our rounds of, of, yeah. of, of them coming to pitch to us. A lot of them, we're not here to seed an idea. Yeah. Um, we're here to help uh, those have had their ideas and execute their ideas, take the next level. Accelerate, essentially. And yeah. accelerate, yeah. essentially. <laughs> so... A lot of them come to us and said, hey, you know, uh, I've got this story. Uh, it's a pretty strong story. Uh, I've executed it in, in, in one space. But how do I market this wider? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, I, I don't understand how to do this. Yeah. Or how do I evolve my brand, yeah. for example? Uh, some of them come to us and say, okay, these are my revenue. This is my numbers. And now I want to open two more. I want to open <laughs> three more. And how do I do that? Yeah, yeah. How, how do I raise money from people yeah. uh, uh, to grow my business? Yeah. Um, and, and, and that's what we realized. Those are the things that they ask help of. Yeah. That's the mentoring part of it that they okay. want. Yeah. I think I've been a little bit jaded because I, I talk to a lot of food entrepreneurs who are established. Yeah. They, they went through the pain um, and they have their own like network Correct. and they support each other. Some yeah. are really bad at that stuff you talk yeah. about, but then some are really strong. But like not everyone can come into such a network right? Yeah. or create it. So, so essentially, you're, you're basically helping the ecosystem in a sense where it's, it's beyond the money and, and growing the food scene essentially. Yeah. right? Uh, how long would the program be and what would the touch points kind of look like? Um, actually, we're keeping it open, uh, in okay. the sense that I think, um, and while the, we're, we're going to close, um, the intake of the accelerator program probably by first quarter next year. Okay. Uh, we'll see how that goes. Um, but once we, we close the intake, then it's really about, uh, you know, the whole program comes alive. Um, the space, the actual physical space will come alive uh, probably at the end of 2021. Um, but before that, you know, once they get onboarded into the program, we would love to start to curate, mm-hmm. you know, um, the sharing sessions and, mm-hmm. you know, the mentoring programs yeah. and and really them uh, coming up with their numbers and, and how do we actually um, start to plan for execution of their yeah. concepts and, and yeah. stuff like that. Yeah. Okay. I love it because it's very uh, agile. I mean, it's, <laughs> yeah. it's not completely, I mean, it's still very early stage, yes. but I mean, you're, you're transforming it and it's, yeah. it's fair, right? You take the data, then you improve it. Yes, it's correct. not like you have this perfect structure correct. that's going to work, correct. but it's going to take time. A lot of people ask me, you know, what are the kind of mentoring services that you provide? Is that a full menu? And I say, yeah. sure. I mean, we have a full checklist, but it's really about who these guys were going to onboard and mm. what do they really truly want and need the most. Mm-hmm. Um, because we have that network of, of mentors uh, that we could connect to anytime. Yeah. Yeah. So for uh, the Platter program, it seems like it's going to really benefit 
the platter hall and the A Connolly ecosystem. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you feel that this program can impact broader, more of the food scene? Yeah. Um, I think when you have, when we have a physical space, uh, that starts to come alive, uh, together with these, uh, F and B entrepreneurs come in, um, we, you know, I would love to start to sort of, broaden the avenue of allowing uh, these F&B entrepreneurs to gain more revenue than just their specific mm. uh, areas. Um, and, and I think that means also being able to collaborate with more people coming into mm, the space. Okay, a network, basically. In, in, yeah. It's like a network, yeah, you know, because yeah. when you have a physical space, people think, ah, it's just a physical space uh, where people will just come in and customers will just come in and eat. But that's not what we are thinking of the space. Yeah. We're thinking of the food hall being a space where, you know, um, the F&B entrepreneurs can also socialize. You mm. know? Um, at the same time, we would want to marry that with the arts. For example, you know, we could have uh, people, uh, live music coming in all the time. So allowing um, for a lot of these uh, local talents to create more visibility for themselves mm. um, and marrying that. Because a lot of people don't see this. They see F&B being F&B and you know, arts and music being arts and music. Yeah. And, and, you know, this happens in really small watering holes, but it doesn't happen in a bigger commercial space. Uh, and that's what I really want to create. It, it goes along with the theme of the lifestyle right. element. Right. And it's it's very much an ecosystem play, right? Yes. And uh, like some of the entrepreneurs I talked to, like from uh, Andrew G from uh, Lazada and Fran, yeah. they, they had experiences with Alibaba. And yeah. I think that's very much the Alibaba play, the way they had to innovate in China was, of course, they could copy some tech, yeah. but because there was so much missing, it's about nurturing the whole ecosystem, right? right. So it's not it's about a specific KPI, yes. but if you help everything around it, eventually yes. the KPI will come, right? right? So yes. I, I could it's see that. It's all about yeah. the ecosystem, what yeah. people really enjoy, the touch Correct. points. Yeah. Yeah, so it's, it's, you know, it kind of may be one piece of that, but it does touch upon, like you said, a network, other elements that you may want to infuse into the future. Yeah. So it's more of a broader ecosystem. Yeah. Okay. I remember uh, the talk you had recently with Jonathan and, and the panel. You guys were talking about how the, around the world, the, this F&B concept of smaller community has come about. How do you think if that concept will also apply to Malaysia now at this point in time? Mm. Actually, I think community is something that in Malaysia, everybody understands. Uh, um, and as funny as it sounds, I mean... Community is human nature. Mm-hmm. Uh, we never want to be alone, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so what really defines a community? When we started uh, A Conley itself, uh, we looked at the branded residences. Uh, and I remember John uh, Hitchcock, uh, who's, a, who's a chairman and founder of you, uh, he told me this. He said, you know, uh, we, we are purveyors in building spaces where like-minded individuals would actually come together. Mm. Um, and that really struck me uh, because that's really the crux of building a community Um, and and I think uh, that's what people identify with and that's what even Malaysians would understand it you know you even when we do um, the branded residences, even though it's a very niche market, mm. but you, when we start to market um, UA, you know, you already see this whole, really all, all, you know, the types of people that are actually coming together, even though they come from all walks of life, yeah. they like certain set of things. Uh, and those things, when we run, you know, smaller events, um, they would have the same uh, topics that are, that are of interest to them. 
Um, and that's, I think, what a community is all about. So I think Malaysians fully understand this, mm-hmm. um, especially when it comes to food. Mm-hmm. Um, everybody loves in Malaysia when you when you know when we started when we ask people what do you like about Malaysia how do you introduce Malaysia the first thing people will tell you is food and all the different types of food and yes. it's all about you know discovering your local favorite uh, your local um, uh, shop that you typically go to and why do you keep going back to the shop is because you identify with the people in the shop it's something that's very familiar to you and I think um so I think Malaysians would uh, gravitate to that and they fully understand that. Mm-hmm. So essentially, it's a good product market fit already. Yeah. Okay. So uh, I guess if you want more information about the Platter Accelerator, we go to the website? Yeah, platterkl.com. Dot com. Yeah. Okay. And uh, I guess you're still taking intake, right? Yeah, for for applications. Intake, okay. Yeah. So if you want to be part of the food scene, if you have aspirations and you want to partner, yeah. I guess KSK can definitely help you guys get there. Um, so for my last question, mm-hmm. uh, I've been doing, you know, like at the end, I do a little bit of a twist a bit. Okay. Um, so maybe it's a little bit challenging. So ha- have you read uh, Glassdoor on your company? No. Because you like data, right? Yeah, I do. I, so in general, nothing to worry about. It's yeah. overall positive. Yeah. And, but uh, there are signs, of course, growing pains, which is yeah. good for you know to learn from. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the more challenging things that I saw coming up was people talking about politics. Mm-hmm. So my question is, you know, with a big corporate and such a young uh, tech dynamic, yeah. right? Two different kind of cultures existing. Yeah. You as a leader, how do you go about addressing? politics where there's too much politicking versus execution mm-hmm. how do you go about addressing that and challenge that challenge yeah um definitely politics is a taboo word uh in building culture yeah. uh, a lot of times when there is friction uh people call it politics yes uh but i think friction is always something that will happen yes um, i agree and you know when we when we first started, uh, we hired a lot of people who were you know let's say like for Kaskiland, we hired a lot of people who were already you know twenty thirty years in the industry mm. and you know already having that track record in property development, and we we were very grateful for these people for for bringing in that experience that was already there. Yeah. But um, as we grew uh, as 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 a business. We understood the kind of DNA with, with building eight colony at the same time. We understood the kind of DNA that we wanted to continue with. Mm. Um, and that, that, you know, what I said earlier with change being constant. Yes. And that's not something that a lot of people can take. That's fair. Yeah. Um, and so a lot of times that's the price of constantly changing. Growing fast. Growing fast. Yes. It's natural. Um, yeah. It's natural. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, and 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 growing that quickly, it's it's together with building a a, a, a product of, of that size uh, at the same time, like Econle, and building a team together. It's it's part of the culture building that I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. So that price that we pay sometimes is a price of friction, yeah. uh, or is the price of people resisting the change yeah. that is coming their way. Yeah. Um, yeah, and, and, and for me, I'm at a place where I think uh, today uh, at KSK, we have a lot 
uh, a much stronger culture and and one that you know we've kind of it's like you're a little kid and then you're now going adolescence <laughs> and you, you yeah. kind of start to discover who yeah. you truly are going to be yeah. um, and I think we'll continue to take that journey yeah really. it's it's an exercise of leadership and culture building essentially right. and right. it takes time yeah. I mean you're you're moving legacy essentially yes, right and you're yeah. transforming one new creating a new identity so yeah. it's all very natural yeah Okay, so before we wrap up, is there anything else you want to plug? Uh, Econole, Platter, anything else? No, I mean, just look out for what we are going to continue to do with Econole yes. and hopefully it will come alive uh, very soon. So, yes. so it would be interesting to see the kind of people that would actually come through our doors. Um, platter is exciting. Uh, we're looking forward to that. Uh, there's a lot more coming into our retail uh, space. Uh, we're doing a lot more interesting things and, and we hope people will continue to follow us and look up. Okay. All right. Thank you so much for your time, Joanne. Thank you. Thank okay. you. Hey, listeners. Thanks to listening to another episode of EOA. I think many of us when younger were similar to Joanne in that we kind of just followed the crowd in trying to figure out what we wanted to do with our careers. However, with Joanne, she had to quickly find her feet in the world of fast-paced banking and kept getting thrown more and more challenges as she left banking to join the family business. And as she solved more and more challenges, from selling a billion ranking company to forming a new conglomerate to launching tech startups, she had to rapidly grow with them and find her own voice, which she has done so to the team she has put together and growing with them to make the company's vision come true and becoming an international conglomerate. I think there are so many things we can follow up with KSK, from them finalizing their full sale of 8 Conley, which I hear is doing very well despite the current pandemic, to seeing their tech startups grow to more markets and hitting profitability soon, to the launch of their CVC and their future strategic and financial investments, to seeing how KSK will help shape the food ecosystem with Platter. Definitely keep an eye on Joanne and her team as KSK Group is making waves in Southeast Asia. See you back here for our next